Drive by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and nice to smell you. It's Drive by Cinema Series <laughs> 3, Episode 45, with my co host Paul. And I hope I don't sully this experience. Smelling. Oh, my co host Richard. Sorry, sorry. Tooth plaque, dental plaque. By, by um, smelling a dental plaque. Richard can smell it from where he is. He's like, you know, the Anthony Hopkins of movies that aren't Silence of the Lambs. And me, Rick, watching the movies yeah, so sorry. you don't have to. I no, you don't have to. That. Did you say that? We did. Hmm. We did. Welcome indeed. <sighs> well, what fine weather we're having. What ridiculous weather. Incredibly hot. It's hopelessly hot, Paul. It's too but hot, it was a great weekend to go away. You were belatedly invited. Mm-hmm. You were a sort of second, a runner-up, yeah. to be invited on our adventure. I, mean, I, which... I have mental health walks on the beach anyway, if that was your intention, Richard. No, we, we did something much weirder. We oh. went to see a radar tower from the Second World War. Whoa. Yeah. During the Second World War, we were defended by... Well, during the Battle of Britain, we were defended by a radar system known as Chain Home. But was it... I mean, were there fluorescent screens? I mean, how did the information come in? How was it represented to the radar? Uh, yeah, I think readers? they had, like, oscilloscopes, and you'd get a blip, oh, and true. they'd have some kind of scale that would tell them how far away that blip was. And that would give them an indication of how many, the distance, and so on. So then they could vector all of the squadrons of Spitfires and Hurricanes to the incoming enemy squadrons and defend the country from the Luftwaffe. This this site you made your way to is now still functional or was functional or is it just still no, standing? No, 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 no. It's the only intact tower from Chain oh. Home. And it was moved. It's no longer on its coastal position. It was moved to an old Marconi factory. I don't think it's a Marconi factory anymore. And you might say, why... Put it next to a pasta factory, and I can't answer that question. <laughs> and to round off our, our weekend of World War Two related shenanigans, we went to Duxford, the the Air Museum, quite close to Cambridge, Paul, which you may or may not have visited. I don't know. But anyway. where was the original? Where was the original t- tour a tower? Somewhere on the coast, whose name I can't pronounce. Oh. But it was coastal anyway. They were all coastal. The radar only worked out over the channel. As soon as the enemy aircraft crossed the coastline, it was down to a plucky band of the Royal Observer Corps. These were men in little little kind of ditches all around the country and with binoculars, yeah, and they would spot the planes and give a bearing in azimuth and then they would report them all back. But it was a bit late, really, once they were over the coast, usually. I imagine, yeah, yeah. Because even back then they would fly at what? Three miles an hour? Four miles an hour? Potentially? <laughs> what, you mean the enemy planes? Mm-hmm. Three or four miles an hour, did you say? Sorry, sorry, what am I saying? Three or four <laughs> miles a minute. Sorry, it's been a long time. Well, that walking pace. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a long, long day. Three or four miles a minute, you know, I would imagine. Well, you're still a train a train pede- a passenger, aren't you? As your train pedestrian would be right, yeah. yeah. It might be quicker walking, yeah. I'm sure that's delightful in this weather. Trains usually are, aren't they? It was actually better than the bus, which I had to take because the train was cancelled. Oh, the rails! Oh, the rails were were warping then, presumably. Is that why? No, no lightning strikes. 
Oh, you had a big thunderstorm yesterday. Gigantic. We've had houses on fire. We've had whole networks of internet down. Kind of thing. No. Yeah. Houses on fire? Mm-hmm. Wow. I watched the... We also had a huge dune blaze, you know. The dunes have been... They were scorched. With, you know, they were dry scorched, weren't they? And it just took one lightning strike to set them all off. So, yeah. I watched the lightning storm and all the hits on lightning map, a live lightning map where you can see every time it hits, it puts it on a map. And it also puts a little expanding circle showing you where the thunder is audible. It was bloody audible. I, I forgot how loud thunder can be because the claps were, you know, originated from maybe half, or a mi- half a mile or a mile away. It's like bloody loud. But in Manchester, you just had heavy downpours. Is that right, yeah? No, 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 no. We had, we had the lightning too. In fact, I think we had it before you did. Uh-huh. Then it moved up north and went toward you. And after you, it hit. Barrow and Furnace, or actually just off the coast of Barrow and Furnace. So a very wet sea is what you're talking about. But I don't think we had a, quite as many lightning sea wet as you did. No, it was continuous and it was it was it was it was impressive. And people say you can't really sense it like animals, but there is a sense of closeness to the air, isn't there, before before lightning strikes. Very typical conditions, I think. And I'm not gonna make fun of you, Paul, because we do know that you're afraid of thunder. Uh presumably you were under your weighted blanket, were you? Or in your special jacket that feels like someone's giving you a hug? I you managed not to make reference to my travel blanket there, so well done. <laughs> like, the most perplexing thing about Duxford as a museum, I thought, thing, something I've never really had explained to me, Go on. is one particular exhibit, which is the V1 launch ramp. The V1 what? The V1 launch ramp. Okay, the Vulcan 1. No, no, not the Vulcan. Now the V1, the bomb, the doodlebug. Oh, wow. The bombs that the Germans invented that were unbanned, yeah. not really guided missiles. And it's just amazing that that was in Duxford because, you know, how did they build it there? <laughs> it's, it's perplexing. But, the, I mean, admittedly, the last place we would look, surely. Yes, hiding in plain sight, I so imagine. All right, I think that is the key for the music. It is. Music maestro. Well, we seem to be getting away without any corrections from previous episodes. It's too hot, isn't it? For corrections. Yeah, it's too hot to be pernickety. Let's move straight on to this week's. <laughs> This week's movie, Bones and All. Bones and All. Recent, 2022, I think. It is. Bill's is a romantic horror film. More romance than horror, I would have to say, in my personal humble opinion. More romance than horror. I think that's true. It's not mm. particularly gory, is it? It's, it's not occasional. gory. And it's not particularly scary either. So It doesn't really s- score on the horror front, does it? As such. Interesting observation. I'm sure we'll have to score that at the end, won't we? Mm. So, yeah, uh, it stars a young actor called Taylor Russell as Marin. Marin, yeah. And of course, Timothée. Timothée Chalamet. I'm sorry, I have to think of the con- shampoo <laughs> conditioner from the 1980s. Timothée Chalamet is her psychic, if you like, romantic psychic. He plays Lee, does he not? We don't meet him quite yet, though. We're at oh, school. Sorry. We're, in the, we're in the plot already, okay. We're at school. 
Marin is playing a piano on her own. A friend joins her. Actually, in fact, we've missed out the way this film actually begins, which is a series of paintings of power lines in various yeah. bucolic settings. And I thought, oh, power lines. These are obviously going to be very important. And I noted that down. And they played a minor part in the next few minutes of the film. And then nothing at all to do with the rest of the film. <laughs> hey, hey. I mean, it's, it's loose association okay. there, isn't it? It, they're, allowed to, they're allowed to throw me a red herring every now and again. Why was not? it supposed to be naive art? Was it supposed to be a museum of bad art stuff? Ooh. I think it was it, supposed to be like the art of we later meet her mother, wasn't it? I don't think her mother was in a position to do art, was she? <laughs> well, not the point we're meeting, but maybe before then. That's what people in hospitals do, isn't it? They're, they're now, to watch this movie and to understand it as a road movie, yeah. you have to know quite a lot about the two-letter codes the United States uses for its states. States. And I don't know those, Richard. Did you look any of them up? Mm, I didn't look any of them up, but I did make wild, probably incorrect guesses about some of them. Well, well don't they start in Maryland? No, they start here in VA. Wait a minute, she says, no, my dad's back in Maryland. At the beginning, the caption comes up that says VA. Oh. And this is where her school is, presumably. Virginia. Virginia, yeah. yeah. Oh, dad, of course. They've moved on since then, as we'll very soon find out. That's right. Her dad picks her up from school and actually lets her drive his car home, because you can do that in the States, can't you? From 15 in most states, I think. 14 in some, I think, under supervision. Not sure about that. And when they get home, the first odd thing happens, which is her dad locks her in her room. Yes. But fortunately, Marin has taken a screwdriver with her because her friend at the piano was inviting her to a party or a sleepover. And she says that my dad will never let me go. So she's got a screwdriver so she can unscrew her window, which has been screwed shut. And that means she gets to go to the sleepover. And she was told, and here's the power line bit, to get to this place, she follows the power lines to the top of the hill. Uh I see. So she gets to go to the sleepover. And it's a cutesy, cutesy teenage girl sleepover, isn't it, pretty much? They do that classic thing of both lying under the glass table, having a -a tete-a-tete, heart-to-heart, don't they? Is that that a normal thing? Yeah, I've done that. Like, when you want to really talk and sort of chat, but not think why you... Like, when you want to make, make teenage... Chat from the heart that you're really not thoughtful. You both put yourself under a glass coffee table. Ah. Yeah. I That's, that just, was very well observed. That was really teenage, 80s teenage kind of behaviour. I thought the reason for lying under a glass table was all to do with porn and shitting and things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your, I don't, your I don't way come sweeter, from the rarefied, privileged, privileged world that Richard does, okay. He's going to be off eating salmon sushi off Naked Women with Kanye West very soon. Really? Is that what Kanye West does? That's how he celebrated his 47th birthday this week. Rather hackneyed, I I think. You know, a bit out of date and a bit sort of... You're right. I mean, it's very 1970s. Also, do you really want to eat... No, I don't. ...raw fish off somebody's... I don't want clams or crabs, thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, well. Now... A strange things ha- happens, doesn't it, during the sleepover? Yeah, very strange thing. I mean, they get it. I mean, the two of them, like, there's four or five girls, and the two of them they're chatting. I don't know what they're chatting about exactly. What are they chatting about? They seem to be making a very intimate bond, don't they? Yeah, kind of that that that, that borderline between girly closeness and fledgling lesbian exploration, don't they? 
I couldn't have put the words together better myself. <laughs> it's a very soft point. boundary for girls, isn't it? You know what I mean? They can kind of put their toe over the line and, and bring it back again, can't they? So. That's true. They can toe the line, yes. <laughs> and so, like, I, that's what you and you're meant to think, oh my gosh, they're going to kiss and they're going to start making out. One of them's going to go, ew. But that doesn't happen, does it? What does happen? Well, Baron essentially tries to bite the fingers off the other girl. Is that right? Yes, or she has a proper go, doesn't she? She I mean, looks yeah. she's chomping on them yeah. at her finger, her friend's finger for a moment, and then goes in with a gnashes straight down <laughs> on it. There is a lot of blood. Yeah, and we see Marin fleeing the house and running home. And Dad immediately, when she comes to the door, she doesn't climb into the window. She knocks on the what door. What have you done? He seems to know immediately, doesn't he? He says, we got, they've got to run. Pack your bags. Pack your bags. We're going to be I mean, three minutes, he says, or something ridiculous like that. We've got to be gone before the police get here. And they're out to another place. To Maryland, I guess. Well, we get the title coming up, uh, I think, at this point. And then, yeah, the two-letter code here is MD. Which must Maryland, be Maryland. I think. Yeah. Isn't it Maryland, not Maryland? Yeah, it is. I think we're making... It's, that's like Americans it's the same Birmingham. trying to say Luga Baruga or Edinburgh. What's it to Worcester. Worcestershire, yeah. Sorry Look, about that. Maryland. I mean, the way you pronounce places doesn't make any sense. That's just it, isn't it? It's secret. It's like a secret code. Well, weirdly, there's local and then there's uber-local pronunciations. For example, the, coast, the small coastal village next to Morecambe is now pronounced Hesham. It used but, to be Haitian. But it no. used to be locally in Haitian called Haitian. But Haitian, now yeah. but now the locals call it Haitian. So weird. Famously where a nuclear power plant is located. Still is, yeah. yeah. Well they don't move very often, do they? No. But it's really no. difficult to get <laughs> movers. So the interesting one is the Manchester satellite town or city, I guess. Or it can't be a city because it's in Manchester. It would be a city otherwise. Bury or Bury. Again, Barry. it's clearly Berry. No, I mean, Mancunians and Lancastrians call it Berry, but I think there was a time when the locals actually called it Bury. Right, well. Yeah. Okay. Don't call well, them that one. They're soft in the head, aren't they? No, in Bury. Right, so what we're we talking about. Yeah, I thought I mispronounced What was it? How do I pronounce it? Maryland. 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 Oh, wow. Okay, it's like a Cambridge College, isn't it? Right, very sophisticated. The, the one that I always mispronounce is New Orleans, which apparently you should only ever call New Orleans. What? New Orleans. New Orleans. Not even New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. Then there's Arkansas. Oh, just don't, I can't. I can't do that. Is it Arkansas or Arkansas? Arkansas. Is yeah. it really? I thought that it was is, apocryphal. Yeah. Wow. But then, if that's true, you shouldn't say Kansas. You should say Kansas. <laughs> All of this pales in comparison to just the ridiculously idiosyncratic pronunciation of British place names. Yeah, uh, like Lugabaruga. Lugabaruga, yeah. <laughs> Lugabaruga. So, they've moved in a hurry. They're running away. They're on the run, effectively, aren't they? They um, are. They've made yeah. a new place for themselves somewhere in Maryland. But then one day, Marion wakes up to find her dad is gone and there is an oldie-fashioned tape cassette and a note. This is her birthday present, essentially, because she's just, she just turned 18 a few days before, hasn't she? Ah, oh, that's right. Okay, so it's like a coming of age 
is that yeah, dad has so decided, dad decides to just fuck he's off had basically you <laughs> can't cope with this anymore you can understand where he's coming from to a degree can't you yeah uh, and she starts listening to this tape she's got an old fashioned walkman is this set in the 80s definitely yeah because they have an old fashioned TV don't they they have an mm-hmm. old CRT TV I mean, I don't yep. know the current generation Z, is it? Just love affair with the 80s, exactly. I mean, I like the 80s. But, I mean, just... I mean, this is trying to play, I think, on that to some extent, isn't it? The, the current... Not nostalgia, but the current sort of... Well, uh, re- it's like last recycling. week's movie, White Noise and Stranger Things, all of that stuff. Nothing mm. would possess me to get a tape cassette player out and put a cassette in it, though, unless somebody's ransom in details was on it or something similar. I mean, they're not just not very convenient. No, no, they're not. You have not. to rewind the fucking things. Yeah. Even even a vinyl record, you don't have to rewind before you play it. So anyway, sorry. So Dad's gone. There's no real reason for her to be in, in Mary Maryland, is there? True, true. He's left her with her birth certificate. And that's her only clue. The only clue to her mum's identity. Whose name is Janelle Hearns? Yeah. Oh, oh! You wrote it down from her birth certificate. Well done. Okay. She decides that she's off to find her mum. Difficult because she's got to catch the greyhound, and the obstinate lady at the desk doesn't really want to sell her a ticket because she considers her to be under eighteen. Oh, when you say catch the greyhound, you mean get a bus. Yeah. On the tape, she's hearing about what her dad is telling her, which is mostly about her history. She, I, I think she has sort of, you know, a trauma response of not remembering these events very clearly. It's enlightening to her to hear that it all started when she was three, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, a babysitter showed up, Penny. She, as a baby, bit the babysitter's earlobe off. It was in her mouth when they found her. Now, there's a level here of... Sort of, you know, when, when she does these things, are we to assume she has superhuman strength or other human strength here? Hmm. So would the jaws of a three-year-old be able to bite off in here? I don't know. If they, I don't think they would, actually. There are a number of occasions where she does things which I think would require quite a lot of strength and skill. As a yeah, like biting through the bones of the girl she's just... The hand bones of the girl she's just been flirting with. Yeah. I don't think you could just chew hands off like that, could you? Yeah. I mean, we don't know that she went through the bone, do we? But I I guess. But you may be right. It's hunger, isn't it? We're we're learning that she gets taken by these fugues of enormous hunger that... Cannibalistic hunger, not to put too fine points on it. And we learn very quickly as she gets off the bus, having gone as far as she could on the money she had. She's not the only one. Who approaches her, Paul? A fellow eater, as they call themselves. Uh, Sully. His name is Sully. Played by... Oh, somebody famous. Mark Rylance. Right. I won't put you on the spot. I know you have, have no facility for actors' names. No, I, I really don't know who he is, actually, this time. But you, know, you don't recognise him. I do recognise him, but I don't know what he's been in. He's doing a great job here. He doesn't look like himself uh, in many ways. It's very, he's very deep in the role. It's he's the kind of role that Woody Harrelson doesn't play that well, but plays often. <laughs> He's got a long kind of rat tail plait yes. in the back of his hair. I think he might be supposed to be like a Native American Indian. Yes, or in quarter extraction. blood or eighth blood kind of thing. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. 
We had, of course, in David Lynch, the lesser spotted villain. What's he called? Was it Bob? It wasn't Bob? Bob was I think it? it was Bob, wasn't it? Yeah. With lots of the reverse animation where he comes up and snarls at the camera. Finally, it was terrifying in 1991, I think, but not anymore. You weren't disturbed by Sully then. I didn't really find him that. Dis- I, I think he's supposed to be disturbing, isn't he? He's supposed to be creepy. He's supposed to be creepy because he approaches Marin on the street when she's. But he's creepy in a non-sexual way, isn't he? Well, he, um, well, maybe. Even towards the know. end, when you know he doesn't want to violate it, does he? A plot spoiler. But. He says that he knows that she's at Nita too because he can smell her. He can smell her. He can also, apparently, smell people who are dead or about to die. Even. Yeah, I think he might be feeling about that. He takes her into a house, not his house, mm-hmm. somebody else's house. Oddly, he gets a bunch of Cornish hens he found in the fridge and starts preparing a delightful meal. Apparently. That was strange, I have to say. Marin at one point asks, who lives here? And he says, use your nose. And she describes the smell. She says at one point, it's more... That was a very good description of smell, actually. Like vinegar in the soup. She says, oh, "Yeah, but metallic." Yeah, she said metallic. metallic, but like vinegar in a soup. It's really good. She obviously got a very good nose. And he said, "Like blood, you mean?" <laughs> Doing his creepy bit. There are people who claim to be able to smell certain diseases, right? Well, dogs and certainly can, can't they? Can they though? Yes. Are sniffer dogs real? Yeah, Richard. I mean, the, the, I mean, the canine nose is, is, although it's a log scale or whatever, is about 400 times more powerful than the human nose. Okay. The thing is, we can't actually Not just in terms dog. of detection intensity, but in terms of variety and, you know, and, 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 and discrimination and acuity of smell, in terms of differentiating odours. If dogs' sense of smell is that good, why do they put their noses right in the arse of all other dogs, and in fact all other animals, and have a good whiff? I mean, why can't they like smell it? Why do gastronomes eat sixteen-ounce steaks? I mean, you're asking the same question, aren't you? Essentially, no. It's it's like a gastronome having all the chilies in the world, like having the the hottest (laughs) (laughs) spices. (laughs) (laughs) It might be quite a subtle smell. I've not really been up a dog's ass that often. I mean, to be honest, when when they train a dog to like find drugs and stuff. Are you about and to then, debunk something that is held to be fairly standard science, Richard, that dogs can smell well? Go on, anyway. I'm not suggesting that dogs can't smell well. We know mm-hmm. that dogs have got good smelly noses. Fine, understood. I think there's room to be sceptical about sniffer dogs being trained to identify things. Because like, when, when a dog handler takes a dog out to try and sniff for drugs or money or whatever else, or firearms, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually the person, the handler, who is watching for when the dog indicates, which is right. get excited or wag its tail, whatever did they do, I don't know. And that is a human decision, right? And so mm. surely is very much open to bias and prejudice on behalf of the handler. Right. They see the guy with the businessman and the dog like wags its tail, but then they waft the dog past the guy with the long hair and the tattoos and the dog wags its tail and it's like, oh, hey, take him into the body cavity search room. And you know, I maybe- think they're trying to have a very specific response, which is wag tail, then sit down and wait patiently and look around kind of thing, you know. 
Yeah, but the dog knows he's going to get a treat under certain conditions. <laughs> and <laughs> the thing is, you cannot ask a dog what it's smelling, can you? I mean, it, it might just be smelling... The guy might have been handling dog food, you know, 20 minutes before he went to the airport. Correct. I'm just saying, maybe we ought to be a bit careful about the assertions that dogs can be trained to sniff all these things out. I don't know. So you think Sully goes up to everybody and says, I, can, I know you're a fellow eater. And he, this, he just happened to the millionth person that he said that to. No, in the fiction of the film, clearly. So they clearly can smell each other. Although she's not trained herself to do this, she's not, but she, it's obvious that she smells things that people don't ordinarily smell. Right. Well, Marin finds an old lady upstairs, isn't she, lying on the floor of the bedroom. So he assures us that he hasn't killed her or prepared her in any way. He can smell when people are near death, and he's just come in now to make a feast. Well, he has rules, the, doesn't he, Sully? He won't a colost- kill people. colostomy bag kind of flesh that's waiting there. He won't kill people. He just goes and waits for people to die, hmm. and then he eats them. Given how creepy it is, you know, I mean, she seems to take this at face value. He's like, all oh, right, Sully's kind of like a weird but kind of nice guy. So he's not helping hmm. her. She's clearly lying there, having difficulty breathing, but not moving. She's alive. And Sully talks to Marion about the need to satiate her hunger when it's safe to do so, to avoid doing something that she would regret in less mm. propitious circumstances, perhaps. Yeah, and later on, plot spoiler, this is the first, what I would say, cannibal confessional, or like cannibals become woke kind of moment, okay, where they kind of talk about their feelings. We get, get, we, later we get a campfire situation, which I call the cannibal confessional campfire, where they have a good ginganguli about how they're all feeling about being judged in certain sort of ways. In the morning, this old lady has sadly died. Mm. Not sadly for Marion. Sully's uh, already took it in, isn't he? He's, he's there in his underwear. He's prepared. Practical. He's stripped down yeah, to his underwear. And he's Which is old men in, underwear, isn't it? The kind used to buy Marks and Sparks, the two-set kind of stuff. Well, his wife fronts and a, and a vest, isn't it? A vest, it? Yeah. yeah. He's tucking in, like a dog, really, just on all yeah. fours with his... With his head in the innards. <laughs> so what can Marin do but join in? She joins in, yeah. And later, here it gets extra creepy. Sully shows her his collection because he kind of, he takes the hair of each person he he's eaten and links it together in a rope <laughs> of hair, of matted dead person hair. Yes. Just in case... We'd miss the macabre veneer that was being applied to Sully's personality. Here it is, <laughs> you know, in close focus. And it, of course, his own plaited rat tail kind of mirrors the same thing, doesn't it? Very oddly. Clearly, Marin is as freaked out by this guy as we are. Whilst he's having a shower, after they've sat there bloody and satiated for a while, he goes for a shower. She buzzes off, doesn't she? Jumps on a bus. All the way. To Indiana, I think. Is that right? No, sir. O-H are the letters oh, for the next stop. Oh, hi. Oh. Well, on the way, she's listening to tape. Her dad is telling her about when a boy disappeared in the woods and they found him in his tent and there was blood everywhere. And obviously, she, she'd done it and eaten him. At some point, she's got to meet our, our, male, our male lead, Timothy Timothée Chalamet, playing uh, Lee. Plainly. And she meets him when she goes to a store where she has to steal some feminine hygiene products, I think. And while she's in there, 
this slimy guy harasses a young mother and Timothy Chalamet's character Lee tells that slimy guy off, leave that, leave that woman alone. She's quite impressed by him standing up to the creep. And as she emerges from the shop, she sees Lee coming out of an abandoned building across the road. He's clearly gone there with that guy and he's covered in blood. And presumably she can also smell him in some way as well. Mm. So she knows that he too is an eater. Is an eater. Yeah. Well, he's got this dead guy's truck, hasn't he? And yeah. she asks him for help. And she says, I don't want to hurt anybody. And he says, famous last words. <laughs> and so begins the real sort of off the Greyhound bus into a truck, road movie aspect of this movie. And road romance. And road romance, yeah. I think they go to the dead guy's place. Lee finds an album by Kiss called... That's right. This is quite a funny moment. Lick It Up. And he's no, quite is, excited by that. This, so is he Timothy, this is Timothy being Timothy, I think. This is what he does best in his acting. He's got some very ripped jeans, hasn't he? They're ridiculously uh, ripped, but I do think that was normal at the time. Really? What? That ripped? I mean, I know. Ripped. We had some strange tendencies. I remember going to buy brand new Levi's, <laughs> buying two tubs, of, two tubs of bleach, taking them straight to the washerette, to what you launderette, and bleaching them until they were almost white. Right. That's strange to begin with, isn't it? You would think you could just buy bleach jeans. I don't think you could at the time. Really, it was an innovation that hadn't occurred to the denim industry. No. You couldn't buy those weathered, I don't know what you call it, those tarnished ones that have... Pre-stressed or something? Distressed ones that Distressed, have yeah. Artificial keyholes, like, you know, halfway down the right, the right front, uh, the pocket, pocket side kind of thing. I mean, he has holes from his knee down to his ankle, basically, yes. in both yeah. of his jeans, doesn't yeah. he? <laughs> and he spends quite a lot of time with his shirt off as well. He does. Especially when he's covered in blood after I mean, he's eaten someone. There is some, there's something to say that he's the new Thimbo, isn't he? We had Himbos, and now we've got Thimbos. Which True. Which are thin men who don't really intellect a lot, do they? But he doesn't look as clean cut as he does in Dune, does he? He's cut kind of a skeevy look. Kind of a bad complexion. And he's got one of those McDonald's haircuts that you keep talking about. Kind of McDonald's. I don't know if it's McDonald's. Well, what is it then, his haircut? It's 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 a semi-mullet, isn't it, really? Semi-mullet, okay. It's, a, it's an 80s shag, I think. <laughs> With some 80s highlights. He's got some sort of, uh, some copper red sort of highlights ho- halfway through it, hasn't he? So they go for a breakfast in a diner. She talks about Sully and... They sleep outside on the truck, and eventually they reach KY? Kentucky. Kentucky. Thank you. Apparently they're going to his aunt's place. After that, he's going to help her find her mum. His aunt has died recently. I wonder if he was responsible? Anyway. But he says he can't be seen in town. Yeah. Interesting. Mystery. We'll find out later. He's going to go to Kentucky to help his cousin learn how to drive. Is that right? And his sister, Kayla who's really missing him because he's been on the run and on the road for ages, presumably not seeing her, turns up. She's so mad that he's gone off and keeps going off. And she insults his... He's got one of those like Western-style frilled shirts. She says... She insults him. She says it makes him look gay. Doesn't it? <laughs> so he takes it off straight away. So he obviously values her opinion. And no. But he has to get out of there before his mum comes. The next scene is they sneak into 
a factory stroke slaughterhouse. They do. That he used to work at. Ah, that's why they went there. Yeah. This It struck me at this point that this whole film, perhaps, is it an allegory for eating meat and veganism and stuff? Well, I was going to say drug addiction, but that's too obvious, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, because they're addicted. Meat. Let me write that down to my other vague overtones and associations list. Meat eating. Because I know we've talked a little bit about this before, but I just want to address the ethics of eating meat or being a vegan. Before you do that, on the, I, I love going on the local Facebook page, Facebook, local town Facebook pages, just to see how many lost cats, how many complaints about parallel parking, you know, how many complaints about doctor, and how many complaints about fly tipping the road. And as part of that, you would never forget people showing the rescued animals that they've rescued. One lady rescued a little, I don't know what you call it, fledgling or a hatchling. I don't know what stage of flight it was in. And said, you know, can anybody do anything with this? Some witty lady said, yeah, some pepper and some salt and, you know, 350 degrees. And of course, she was <laughs> met with, she was met with the Facebook outrage. Facebook she tried to point outrage. out that it was a joke and that most people are meat eaters. You don't object to that, which is a fair point. Uh, and that it isn't a pet and therefore, you know, it isn't entitled to rights like that. But nobody was listening to her at all. So I've just prefaced what we're going to say with that. Because fly tipping is another social menace, isn't it? That's the practice of waiting till it's night Sleep, and the flies yeah. are sleeping and then pushing them over. <laughs> Dolphin Veganism. tipping, they drown because yeah, you turn their little blowhole upside down, wouldn't you, as they sleep? Right, yes. I think that's true. Except dolphins sleep one half of the brain at a time. Mm. Whoa. So they don't just float asleep? No. They float half no. asleep? Exactly right, yeah. Wow. Oh, probably they would drown, wouldn't they? So there is this ethical argument that for veganism, which on the face of it, I think, is reasonably persuasive, right? You know, maybe you shouldn't harm animals just for us to have tasty meat. I don't know how you think about that. Some people claim that in the future, we will live in an enlightened time where no one will eat the flesh of animals and... Meat eating will be seen in much the same light as slave ownership <laughs> is seen. You laugh. <laughs> I'm sorry. If, if we're going to serious figures, listen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's an ethical challenge. It's addressing. I think. I think somewhat. It needs to take it seriously, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it needs to be taken seriously. <laughs> Stop it right now. Look. Right. You You're not a utilitarian, are you? I, I am. I, I do believe that we could maybe sum up moral actions. So I'll just put that in. I'm, I'm a well, reformed and enlightened utilitarian. I, don't, uh, I think I probably am. I, mean, I, I don't believe. I don't believe we can calculate things to that extent. But I, I believe, you know, ultimately we do have to do some sort of moral cost analysis to all this. So, what I am not is much of an animal lover. Right. <laughs> That's just where I'm at. I don't right. much care for them. So, uh, when we're talking about utilitarianism, for example, I. I I have no interest in being cruel to animals. No. Because I've no real interest in being cruel. But you're not interested animals. in being necessarily very kind to them either. But also, additionally, if not there humans. is someone <laughs> if if there is someone who wants to be cruel to animals and they get a kick out of it, hmm. I kind of feel okay, I mean fine. I wouldn't want to share a sleeper carriage with them on a long a long range train journey or go to a dinner party with them, maybe. But if that's how they get off 
you know, to each their own, you know. And I think the utility of their pleasure probably outweighs the disbenefit of some animals suffering because of their weirdness. Okay, that's provocative. I know it's provocative. I know I'm extreme. Seen on that spectrum, you can see why I don't really have a big problem with eating meat. Fundamentally, people start talking about animals and suffering, and they start talking about, like, spinal columns and cognition and how clever the animal is. Mm -hmm. And... If you I'm lie sure down, that. if you lie down when a bull's chasing you, there's a 70% chance it will be able, won't be able to distinguish you from the fucking ground, okay? <laughs> the only risk you get is it randomly tramples you, okay? <laughs> so think about it. There's not a lot going on in there, is there? Not a lot going on. But even if you've got a really clever animal, I don't think you can just project what we understand mm. as suffering onto animals. Look, it's the old pea zombie argument. Again, the philosophical zombie argument. Just because an animal acts as if it's suffering or in pain doesn't mean its internal experience of pain is in any way the same. But you can program a robot to act like when, you know, if you bash its foot or whatever, it will protect itself. It's understandable that animals have that same response. Well, they make calls, don't they, to their mates and, and, you know, and, and their community. We make calls, and therefore we associate the calls we make with the pain that we know we feel, but it doesn't necessarily mean that if, if animals are calling out in pain, they're feeling they're experiencing pain in the way that we do. All of this, though, suggests that they'd be cool eating animals if they didn't suffer. And it's perfectly <laughs> possible to imagine keeping an animal, making it happy, and then killing it instantaneously so it doesn't know about it. And it can't possibly suffer. Now, they may say, a a vegan's argument may be, yeah, but that's it's it's not moral to keep an animal for the purposes of intending to kill it, and it's also not moral to end an animal's life. I don't fully understand that. Okay, so where I come in with utilitarianism is I've got a neighbour, and she feeds the birds in winter through November, December and therefore makes them fatter and more likely to survive and more likely to breed. Okay. And she's just more setting likely to up, be eaten by a cat. <laughs> well, but she's setting the bird, local bird population up for overpopulation, isn't she? And therefore starvation the next winter. Right. So, yeah, so yeah. you know, there is no intervention where you can... I mean, the limitations of traditional utilitarianism are also the limitations of being interventionist in the animal world from either a good or a bad perspective, aren't they? You can't know the animal world to that extent. So, Also, you can't... I don't think there's any way of generating enough calories for a human to live on without affecting a load of animals who would have wanted to have eaten that food, for instance. Or- and then finally, there's a weak argument. I admit it's a weak argument. Okay, if we don't eat them, they're going to get eaten by other things anyway. So, <laughs> Moreover, though, look, from an evolutionary point of view, from the point of view of, say, a chicken gene, mm-hmm. being eaten by humans is a fantastically successful way of propagating your genes. It is rather, isn't it? It's like the pig at the end of the universe, at the restaurant at the end of the universe, isn't it? Well, there are billions more chickens alive right now than would probably have ever been alive. Can we call them chickens, though? They're so genetically modified through just traditional husbandry uh, in in recent years, maybe by genetic modification. They are about eight times bigger than they used to be 50 years ago. Incredible. I didn't know this. But the genetic heritage of all of that chickenness is still in there. And from the point of view of chicken genes, that has been a win for them, hasn't it? It has, yeah. So if the vegan holds life to be like the sacred thing that we shouldn't end, Mm. it's surely a good thing that chickens get eaten because more chickens exist. If it's the existence of the animal 
that is the key thing, then clearly having more chickens must be a good thing, no matter what their fate. Now, look, I'm open open to the argument that we don't want to make them suffer, despite what I said about not much caring. Many, many people do care about animals, and I'm completely open to the idea that we shouldn't make animals suffer if we don't mm. have to. There are farming practices that perhaps could be better to the animals, but fundamentally, it, you either think that it's suffering that's a problem, in which case we end the suffering, or you've got this weird thing about not killing animals, in which case loads of animals never get the chance to exist. Look, we all draw the line somewhere in the kingdom of life. Like, just vegans refuse to eat anything in the animal kingdom. I'm inclined to think we should be okay eating anything that's outside the human species. But I might even extend that to the, the higher primates. Well, Lee and uh, Marina, is it? What's she called? They're okay with humans too. They're okay with humans too. Each to their own. Marin. Marin. Yeah. So there you go. They, they have their first kiss in the slaughterhouse, don't they? Yeah, it's obvious they're falling in love. Overlooking the cattle pens romantically. So where did they meet up with Jake and Brad? It must be now, mustn't it? That is in the state of M.O., M.O., Paul. Right. Missouri? Okay, we'll go with Missouri. Uh, they stop in a clearing. I think Lee is sharing that his first time was a babysitter too when another car pulls up. They've just guys. been at the waterfall getting clean, haven't they? That's right, yeah. I saw you two down the waterfall today. Something There's one like creepy guy, another creepy guy, called Jake, wearing Jake stylish is- pair of dungarees. Yeah, Jake's like the leader, okay, and Brad is his sidekick, essentially. Now, it turns out that Brad is a cop. That's his yeah. job. And he kind of caught Jake at his eatery act, didn't he? Now, it transpires that Brad the cop is not an eater. Like, he's he normal. doesn't smell like an eater. He's a normal. But he, he's really he's, into the idea. And of he's it. joined in on three corpses. So he's like, like a filthy casual, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, then we get some more sensitive cannibal confessional for the millennial generation. Jake says, uh, I'm feeding on bone and I'm feel, I'm feeling, ah, watching over me and it's Brad. So he talks about the first time that Brad really intervened and sort of barged in on his eatery world. And he felt, he felt conflicted about that to begin with. But soon they're mates and now they're killing and eating together. Wonderful. And we get the name of the movie soon, don't we? Because Jake asks whether or not these the, the two young'uns have ever gone full bones. Full bones, yeah. It's really gone, the sort of eater support group, hasn't it? All these sort of weird in-house terminology. And they don't know what that means. And he explains that it's bones when you and all. the whole thing, bones and all. Yeah. Marin is disgusted by Yeah, guy. like she's got any right to be disgusted. Let's be frank about this. Oh. <laughs> she's disgusted by a guy... Eating people when he doesn't have to. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. I She's see. disgusted with that. That's her moral particular. high ground. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I can accept that. Yeah, that makes sense. She has to do it. He doesn't have to do it. He's doing it because he wants to. <laughs> so, in the nighttime, <laughs> Lee and Marin. Away. Yeah. yeah, they don't turn the headlights off on the truck on and then they just. Weirdly, roll Jake, away. He's, on the, he's on the case. He's chasing after them. Yeah, God knows what he had planned for them. And then we cut to the... Well, now we go to a new staple. I don't know, the most oxymoronic juxtaposition, which is Joy Division playing out in the American sort of 
Pasteland is just so incongruous. Like, it, I mean, Joy Division, it's a wonderful, I don't know what you want to say, Sound of Silence or something, I don't know what it's called. Sort of glittery little Tinkerbell star. There's a very magic feel. And, you know, it, it's a song to sort of kiss your first love on. Walk away You know, and then the little, little twinkly bits come down and it becomes slightly orchestral and slightly churchy. But it just doesn't breathe the fire of the free American West, does it, really? Let's be honest about it. I think it's nice that Joy it Division, is, though, touches people from all different walks of life. They're in the state... Designated by IA, Paul. IA. That must be Iowa. Are you checking my answers? So, I? That's the sound of me shrugging. Oh, okay. We could do, do this. You know, at least ten percent of our listeners are, are in the states. So, howdy, Al. My, my apologies that we For are so ignorance, ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> they visit a fun fair, don't they? They, they do. kiss on a Ferris wheel, which is not a euphemism. Sounds like it though. And there's a carny booth. You know, one of those throwing your I think they're throwing the balls into milk pails or whatever. So we get our second insight into Lee's somewhat twisted morality, murderous morality, about how he justifies to himself the people that he's going to kill. It's essentially people that are, that bully women or, or children, isn't it? Or maybe the old as well. I think he's also looking for single men that don't have oh, wives and kids. Right? right. There's a complicity of convenience and sort of self-defensive morality going on here, isn't there? Lee then goes about seducing the carny guy. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be mind being seduced by Timothy. He's understandably successful at it. He is. Yeah, yeah. You, you probably wouldn't say no, even if you were straight, would you? You know, I mean, bit of a shame, isn't it? Especially in Pride Month, to have yet another gay guy who turns That's... out to be a cannibalistic serial killer. Oh, sorry, that way around. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they're not doing great, are they? So Blackpool is famous for its gay cannibal killer. Really. Yeah, he won. He won Mr. Blackpool, right? And then he went to eat the other competitors. It's wow. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't make it up. When uh, was that? Then was that recently or? Years well, ago? he's you know he, he was in the promotional video where they all turn up to a slightly naff seafront hotel that's got a swimming pool, and they all do like gay things in the swimming pool in the buff kind of thing, whilst being slightly kind of effeminate but very very. Very, very masculine at the same time. You know how gay 2000 was. Okay. And then they do their little show, which, you know, is a Miss World show, but in a small club in the middle of Blackpool. And he kind of wins. And uh, yeah. So it's all, so because he won that, it's, it, like before he did the eating, it's all, the, the months before, it's all documented in a documentary about Mr. Gay Blackpool or Mr. Gay UK, I think it was. Right. Okay. Perhaps it's an accurate portrayal <laughs> of a subculture of male gay gay life, I guess. Marion is watching from the truck as yeah. he takes this carny guy away from the booth after he's finished. He kisses him, and then they run into a, one of the proper tall cornfields that you get to lost get stoned. In. I think that was the. In fact, we watched the entire movie about being lost in the cornfield. If you remember, I think we, that was may have been season one. That could have been a fever dream, Richard. Or I hope it was. She gets out of the truck to go. She's curious, and she hears them doing sexual. I couldn't things. really see who was who was jacking who off. I think Timothy sure. was, was helping sure to it's make important sure important to the plot. <laughs> well, because somebody's taking a really long time and being quite insistent the other person go faster. Ali Ali True. Aster kind of thing. So True. I was just intrigued to know who was pleasing whom. You know who was playing mother and you know ingratiating his way before he viciously slits the other guy's. Well, just as the guy reaches open. orgasm. He cuts what a way his throat to go. and yeah. then starts to eat him straight away. And he beckons her over to join the feast. Wow. 
And now they have two vehicles. So that's nice. Well, they pull over very quickly, don't they? What do they pull over? Because they recognize some license plates. Is that right? No, no, no. So they're trying to go to the home of the carny guy. They must have found his driving license or whatever. And as they get there, they see that there are lights on. That's strange. Somebody's home. And they see through the open window a woman with a kid. Yeah, so if there was a very subtle sort of anti-gay narrative going on here, it would be here. It's like, you know, they really regret killing him because he's not gay. He's not gay. Turns out he's not gay. He's bisexual at best. And now they have a crisis of conscience. <laughs> just, just this weird morality. Saying, like, I had no idea. There was no car seat, no wedding ring. <laughs> Marion is feeling guilty, you know. And he berates her, you know, saying, you know, you're making this harder. Uh, by which he means this whole process of killing and eating people. And <laughs> she has these flashbacks occasionally. Weird this is one I didn't understand. Yeah. yeah, this is one where her dad seems to be throwing up blood. And I don't, wow. I didn't understand what that was about. I don't Daddy, think Daddy is an eater, eater too, potentially, but can control. I don't think he was. Was he? Was he? There's no well, other. Well, later on, the son has not been that. I can. It's been a little bit economical with the truth, hasn't it? So. Anyway, then the next state is MN, Paul. That must be Minnesota. I gotta say, you're probably right. But I think I've said that before. <laughs> right. Okay. How do you how do you write them all down? Well done. Can we just cut to the idea that she finds her maternal grandmother, Barbara Kearns, somehow? Yes. Yeah. She goes anyway, to the address, doesn't she? She's not welcome. And the woman tells her that her mother is no longer with us. And two, she's not her maternal grandmother or something? Possibly so, yeah. Yeah, That's right, so, I think she was adopted. So Maren's mother is adopted. There we go. She obviously knew there was something funny about Maren's mum. Mm. Because when she's confronted about her hurting people, she kind of spills the beans and says, I said she's not with us, she's not dead, she's in a mental institution. She locked herself up in Fergus Falls. Yeah. Fergus Falls. Don't so she goes me. to the asylum, doesn't she, to find her mum. There we see. Quite well, I mean, first of all, it's institutionally sort of tile walls like hospitals used to be. Bring it back. Bring it back. The smell of disinfectant on those beautiful tile walls. Bring it all back. I don't I don't like the modern hospital with its low ceilings and its carpet. Oh no, grubby. <laughs> Give me some clean, antiseptic, slightly hostile tiles every day. Give me some institutionality. The nurse hands Marin a letter that her mum had wrote for this occasion. Well, mum's there, isn't she? Yeah, but... Mum's there with no hands. She she doesn't speak, does she, her mum? Seems fairly harmless. Okay, yes, so the important point you've just revealed is she apparently has no hands now. (laughs) And I think we're given to understand, in fact, they even say it later, that she tried to eat her own hands. Her own hands. So we know she's an eater. It's it's, it's explicit, as, as, as implicit could be. She actually jumps at Marin, doesn't she? She seems to attack her. Yeah. There's a lot of gump in the letter, isn't there? It's not really revealing. It's just her just going off on one, isn't it? Yeah. Obviously, Marin is a bit upset. She runs out where Lee is waiting with his truck. And so, uh, yeah. And, and and what happens? They they do they? She runs away. Part ways. She runs away. She she's kind of lost it. I think. She's having um, a def- difficulty managing her emotions, isn't she? So you think and it'll all be Sully. over now. Wouldn't it be strange if somebody from the recent movie past turned up to haunt her? It's Sully who has Sully, been stalking yeah. her for many a Surprise, state. surprise. And he says, 
that he was upset by her rejection of him. He says, I dried off next to you. That means something. <laughs> so cannibals are sentimental too. <laughs> are they? So, so now we know Sully just doesn't look creepy. Thanks for confirming that creepy people who look creepy actually are creepy. Thanks, Murphy. Two months later, Marin finds Kayla. Who the hell's Kayla? Kayla is Lee's sister. Right. And she tells Marin that he's camping down by a lake. Oh. Uh, And they both get back together again, don't they? That's right. That's right. Lovely. We figure out that Lee killed his dad because he was protecting Kayla from his drunk dad. Right. So he killed him and then what did he do? Well, waste not, what not. I, I think he ate him as well, didn't he? We get more New Order, don't they, as they start driving driving west. Yeah, I don't mind the New Order. And he says that his dad came for him with his, with his teeth. So presumably his dad was an eater. Wow, okay. And then apparently he took him to a barn and locked him up for three days and then ate him. Yeah. There's morality in the cannibals' world. It's later now. It's August, apparently. I don't know what months we were in earlier. They're trying to be people for a while. And Marin's got a normal job in a bookshop. In the university faculty, yeah. They have a montage of a normal life as they go about normal job type things. And maybe months have passed because she looks like she's grown into a fairly professional, hardworking and sort of urbane young woman, doesn't she? But she's coming home, isn't she? And there's no Lee there, but she finds a dun, bag dun, dun. on the bed. A, a, a familiar-looking bag. Would it be somebody who's sort of followed her before, perhaps? He grabs her with a knife, doesn't he? Yeah. And he says that he saw Lee walk out of the place half an hour ago, so he knows they're alone. So it's solid spotlight to do his five to ten minutes of intensely in-your-face creep. He's telling her he has unfinished business. She assumes it means some sort of violation or rape, but he's like, no, no, I don't mean that. Well, this is happening while he's threatening her. I think he gets on top of her, on the bed, Paul, in Mm -hmm. what you're describing as a completely platonic fashion. Lee arrives back and puts a plastic bag over Sully's head and face. And they obviously start fighting, don't they? And I think Lee gets stabbed, doesn't he, during this fight? He does. But the pair of them managed to manhandle him into the bath. And at this point, I think I think Marin sort of manages to start eating him or something. Like, dick him. Yeah, well, she also licking Lee's blood as well. I don't know whose shirt she was, like, under with her chores. So I think it's supposed to be ambiguous whether she's polished them both off. Lee's dead. No, 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 no. Oh. She's not... She, she wasn't eating Lee. Oh. No, because... But Lee has been stabbed during the fight, so yeah. and he's not feeling so good. Or he gets out of the bathroom underneath the corpse of Sully, and as they're sort of sitting on the floor, she finds Kayla's hair on the end of the guy's hair rope. Uh. They know that he's killed Lee's sister. She wants to get an ambulance for Lee, but he says he's dying, and he asks her to eat him, begs her to eat him. He wants her to eat him. Oh, he wants her to eat him. Sorry. And the last shot we cut to is them sort of naked cradling on a blanket on a hill. Is that hallucinating? Yeah, is dying? I don't know. As he's so dying, that's, that's what he imagines. 
Do we assume that she's eating him, yeah? I guess so. She's going to be pretty hungry after all that exercise. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, you know, winners don't do drugs and nice people don't become cannibals. Like, there's a moral to this story. Don't become a cannibal. It'll end in a very romantic but grisly manner, won't it? Hmm. Well, we've got to score it, Paul. We've reached the end, the natural end. We do, but first of all, we have to talk about what vague analogy is it. Is it vague sex ring associations? Is it vague drug addicts associations? Or is it vague sorts of meat eating associations? Vegan associations. What's it, what's it all about? It must be about something. I don't mm. know. I think it's slightly confused, isn't it? It doesn't. It doesn't come to any firm conclusions, and ultimately, it's, it's just about a stalker, ultimately, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it got it got great reviews on the you know on the meta 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 review platforms, but I have to say, if we're about to head into scores, I don't think it was as good as people that like Timothée as an actor think it is. Really, <laughs> look from an I'm acting. I'm a fan point of Timothée. I have to say, so. from an acting point of view, they put in a good job. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, he's a good actor. There's no doubt about it. So is Mark Rylance, and so oh, is a Taylor Russell. Taylor Russell. Yeah. They'll do a good job. Oh, no doubt about it. The acting's good. For acting, I would give this an eight, Paul. Hmm. I don't know if you've anchored that to where I want to go elsewhere. I, I, I think it's not Timothée's best, but it's not his worst either. He is a great actor. And he's also the fo- you know of the photogenic quality that makes great stars that Hollywood requires, you know. So, yeah, but he's uh, making himself look scuzzy in this movie. He's, he is. He's inhabiting the role. Yeah, he's slumming himself down, isn't he? But, you know, he's, he's got a decent, bad complexion. He, he, he's not just a pretty boy. He's a very decent actor indeed. Okay. So I'm going to go 8.5. I thought the acting was convincing. It's not what let the movie down at all. What did, then? What's the next category? <laughs> right, well, the plot is, one, a little bit threadbare. Two, I mean, it's just a role movie with some... Very limited horror, and a stalk that you aren't really aware of. Like we just become aware of the stalking at the end when she becomes aware of it. So tension, thrill doesn't exist, does it? And I mean, like there are lots of beautiful shots, but they don't really yeah. resonate in any way like a role movie should. That's because it's not really a role movie; it's a horror movie. I mean, you've got to decide what you're doing. I think, and it's kind of. It's kind of trying to exist between two places. and It's genreless again, isn't it? It is genreless. Death is genre. And it butters its toast a little bit too thin. I'm going to score the plot down and make it a 5.5. I'm sorry. All of these dangling threads. Like, Hmm. you know that thing I said at the start where there's pictures of power lines in fields and stuff. And then she has to follow the power lines to the top of the hill. And you're thinking, oh, wow, you know. That's an important resonance been written into the plot and the fabric of the script. And clearly this whole thing is going to be about power or connections or networks. or But it isn't. It's not, nothing to do with any of those things, unless I'm completely stupid and missed it. And the weirdy moment where we have to see cannibals as human, just like the rest of us, you know. There are deep human truths that extend all the way to cannibals and back again. It just, the campfire moments and the talking about the morality of Tim... Timothy's character, Lee, when he, he meets people he doesn't like and all this, it just doesn't, the jigsaw just doesn't fit. So 5.5. How do you score it for plot, Richard? And by the way, consensual cannibalism I've got no problem with. I don't see why I can't say to somebody, if you want to eat me, well, I'm dead. Richard's off to Germany next week, by the way. <laughs> that should be fine. <laughs> 
I will give it a five. Whoa. Like it. I like this swinging scoring. Okay, I think we have to do road movie vibes because it is 60% a road movie. They eat in diners. There's the tinkle of a bell as they go into a convenience store with, you know, tumbleweed coming past. There are some nice shots. You get the sense of the openness of America and the 80s America before CCTV, just how you could get away with things, you know, the freedom of it all, the freewheeling freedom of it all. It did work as a road movie, but there are much better ones being made, so I'm going to give it a 6.5 for road moviness. They go to a fun fair. And they camp out at night. It's a bit hackneyed. Go on, I'll give it a Waterfall, yeah, it is hackneyed, isn't it? It's every road movie moment sort of just tumbled into a tumble dryer and sort of squeezed down with some <laughs> with some with some fabric softener isn't it so yeah i think we have to go to horror horror yeah horror and intrigue. fear factor horror fear factor and intrigue all in one and this is where i've got to score it badly it doesn't work in terms of horror it, it just in no way does it does it turn or touch any of my horror typical horror buttons come on it it is it's icky. It's exactly. It's, it's got an morally ick unpleasant. Yeah, that doesn't make it good horror for me. I'm sorry, but you can score it what you want to. I'm going to score it a four point five. It's creepy. It is creepy. It is creepy. There's plenty of creepy characters, but okay. are they so difficult to do? I mean, most guys are fully capable of being creepy at the drop of a hat, aren't they? Look <laughs> <laughs> so what. What are you going to score it? I'll score it a six point five. As well. Something along those lines. I think we have to do overall by now, surely. We must have done five categories or something. This is really marginal, isn't it? I'm I'm tossing up my scores and thinking the scores I want in my head, and they both come out the same. It's really marginal for me. It is a 5.5 for me. It just makes it over the hill. It can gather speed at its own pace. It's innovative in its weird, genreless, structuralist kind of... It is weird. A road movie where people eat people. I saw a review that said, how can something so brutal be so beautiful or something? No, it doesn't achieve that kind of juxtaposition. Not quite. It feels a little bit like it wants to be like an old-fashioned 80s, 90s high fashion magazine. You know, all those yes. pictures of US like abandoned gas stations with people in ripped jeans kind of thing. It wants to be that in a movie form. With People eating. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be better just as like a montage of 80s America, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah sort of, probably. If we, if we had, you know... you know, uh, But fewer people would watch it. The sensationalism of watching people eat people is part of the, the attraction of this movie, isn't it? Along with Tim- Timothy Chalamet. Timothy, yeah. Oh, a little Timothy. Oh, it's it, We should be reviewing soon, no doubt, come October, November, when Dune 2 finally hits the streets. Right. My overall well, so is a five. It's a 5.5 from me, Richard. What did you score in total? A five. A five. A five? Whoa. Faint praise indeed. Okay. Well, time's short. I guess we have to say what we're doing next week. I've got two choices for you, Richard. No, three, as, yes. as we traditionally put forward. Okay. I've got Mr. Nobody. It's been on the slate before. This is my second one, Triangle. And finally, Her. H. E-R, E-R, I think. Which is all about someone falling in love, I think, with an AI, which Whoa. I think is very apropos. It's over the moment. It is. So I'm, I'm going to go for her. Whoa. 
That will be my choice too. Okay, so here it is next week. Until the next time. Okay. Do join us next time. Ciao for now. Goodbye. See you on the next one. Bye. Thank you.